Do you ever feel like you need a change in perspective? Just to see things from a different point of view. I have a friend, I'm going to call him Jim. His name isn't actually Jim, but uh, whenever he feels really grumpy or upset about something, he actually does a headstand because he says he wants to see things from a different perspective or a different point of view. And actually, he's told me that it almost always puts him in a better mood. I read this story a little bit ago about a Polish philanthropist during uh, the Soviet era who built an upside-down home to protest the wrongs that he saw against humanity. And it symbolized, he said, the disconnection between the government and its people in the former communist state of Poland. Interesting. So flipping things can be a bit of a, a political statement as well. But I don't know if you realize this. Some of you might know this. But right now, everything that you see, you actually see upside down, physiologically. Every image that you see, you're looking at me, you actually see me as if I was standing on the ceiling. It's true. As light comes through the lens of your eye, it's inverted or flipped. And the image that the retina of your eye receives is actually upside down. That's how you see things. The thing is that our brains are so used to seeing things upside down that they train themselves to see things right side up. It's believed that during the first few days of life, babies see everything inverted or flipped. And they actually did a study where they gave subjects glasses, lenses that they had to wear that would flip everything before their eyes could see them. And they found that after just a few days, they would start seeing things right side up again. Now we're in the second week of a series entitled Jesus on the Good Life. And throughout this series, it actually has been a lot of Jesus sort of asking us to look through correctable lenses, to flip things. Him suggesting that perhaps that the way we look at the world may actually be upside down. That perhaps because of the culture we're surrounded by or outside influence or our own mistakes, we've trained our brains to see certain things as desirable, certain things as the key to life. Certain things as the way to get ahead that simply, according to Jesus, are not. And so to examine this, we've been looking at a passage that a lot of scholars over the years have referred to as Jesus' discourse, his opus on the good life. What the good life looks like, who should be saluted for living these sorts of ways. It's often referred to as the Beatitudes. And these sayings are both his description of the good life and also his congratulations to people who live in these ways. And this week, we're going to look at how, how well we think of ourselves, how capable we think we are, what we think our potential is, how that affects our ability to live a good life. And I was just thinking about this. I was reminded of a character from the 90s. Some of you may have seen him on YouTube. Some of you may have actually lived through when this was a popular sketch on Saturday Night Live. But does anyone remember or has anyone come across a character of Stuart Smalley? Okay, here's some giggles. Good. All right. That makes me feel better. Okay, so Stuart Smalley was a character on Saturday Night Live. 
uh, is actually portrayed by now Senator Al Franken. Funny how things change. And he did this bit called Daily Affirmations. And one thing that he would do every week is he would look at the mirror, and if you know this, you can say it with me, but if you don't know it, that's fine too. He would look at the mirror and he would say, Stuart, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. (laughs) Uh, He turned it into a book. And someone looking in the mirror and saying those things to themselves can seem a little bit over the top, and I get that, and that's part of the reason it was a comedy sketch. And it was a play on a big self-esteem movement that was really popular in the 80s and into the 90s. But I actually remember, without having ever seen Stuart Smalley, when I was in junior high, I actually, full disclosure, not proud of it necessarily, had these kinds of conversations with myself. Usually it was whenever I was at that junior high dance and I really wanted to ask that certain girl, I think her name was Lucy, to dance. That's her real name. But I didn't have the courage, and so I'd say to myself, Brad, you're, you're, you're a good guy. You're cool. Why not? You can ask that girl to dance, right? Or I'd often, I remember having this conversation outside a party before I went in, where I'd say, oh, Brad, you're an okay guy. You're a good guy. People like you. You're cool. Go on in. Now, I don't know if I ever actually looked in a mirror and did that, but I definitely had those types of conversations with myself without even thinking. And you might be wondering, did it help? Well, I don't actually remember any of those girls saying yes, um, full disclosure again. But this is part of the question we're going to ask today. If you think you're awesome, will that help in your life? If you think you're a totally terrible person whose only hope is in God, will that help? And how should we feel about ourselves? What difference does it make? And you might be surprised to find out that Jesus actually talks about this kind of stuff. And that's what we're going to look at today. So we're reading just the first part today of the Beatitudes of Jesus' discourse on the good life. Um, Just the first four verses, and you can follow along with me. And I'll read it loud enough. I hope that everyone can hear it as well. So this is Matthew chapter 5, the first four verses. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him. And he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So, what can we learn from this passage about how we view ourselves and the good life? Well, the first thing I think we can notice is that the good life belongs to those who know their need. Now, I don't know if this is a surprise to you or not. Pride depends on what circles you run in. But in one circle I run in, uh, this statement would be a big surprise. I'm not sure if many of you know this, but in addition to being a pastor, I'm also a professional coach. I do life coaching. And from time to time, I need to go for trainings. And when I do trainings, one of the common things that I've heard in a lot of the trainings that I've been to has been this, quote, every person represents unlimited potential. Now, I think there's truth to this in the right context, but sometimes people think think this means that anybody can do anything if they just don't give up, if they work hard, and if they, and you guys know what comes next, if they what? If they want it, if they they believe, believe. (laughs) 
If you believe in yourself and you don't give up, you can do or be anything. And if you've ever watched any reality singing television program, you know this must be true. Because every consistent, every contestant has been dreaming of this moment for their entire lives. And now that they're 16, <laughs> and on this show, they know that it's true that if you don't give up, if you try hard and you believe, you can do anything. But you know what? They don't know if that's actually 100% true. Now, I'm not saying that each person in this room doesn't have tons and tons and tons of potential. I'm not saying that if you... I'm not saying that if you find the thing that you're made to do and you set your heart to that and you make room in your life for help even, that you can't do or be all kinds of crazy, unlimited potential types of things. But what I am saying is if that six-year-old Brad's in little boy who loved basketball but stunk, if he practiced three hours every day until he was 18, I'm not saying he might not have been on the high school basketball team. I'm not saying maybe, maybe if he played that much, he might have been able to play college ball. But I am saying that that little six-year-old Brad Zinn who loved basketball was never going to be 6'8". And no matter how hard I train, I am never going to be able to jump as high as LeBron James. I am never, no matter what I had done in my whole life, I just don't have in the neurons in my body the capacity to have ever have been as good a basketball player as LeBron James. No matter how much I believed I could be the best basketball player in the world, it wasn't going to happen. Have you guys heard of Florence Foster Jenkins? She's famous. There was a movie just made, well, she was sort of famous at one time. There was a movie that just came out about her. And she did famously sing at a sold-out concert in Carnegie Hall. She filled the place. But the thing is, and it's not clear that she ever understood this, she was famous because she was a terrible singer. And people came to sing, see her sing because she appeared at least to believe that she was an incredible singer. And so people would come and see her perform. They bought her one record. It was a hit because she was so bad. And it wasn't that she didn't work hard. Apparently she spent thousands of dollars, thousands being coached by not just random voice teachers or conductors, but by the most famous voice teachers and conductors in the city of New York. It was in 1944. But it seems that she never realized that people were laughing at her or leading her on. And this last year, actually, the role of Florence Jenkins was played by Meryl Streep in a movie. But the truth of the matter was, no matter what she did her whole life, she was never going to be Pavarotti. She was never going to be Ella Fitzgerald. She was never going to be Mariah Carey with or without a working sound system. It wasn't going to happen. Too soon? <laughs> wow, I've got someone feeling emotion. Oh, you see what I did there? All right, I'll stop there. Um, but my point is that when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and in a few weeks you'll get to hear a full sermon just on this idea. I'm just touching on it. 
to set up where we're going for the rest of this talk. In a few weeks, you'll get a full exploration of this idea. But for today, it's important to note that the poor are those who know their need. They're aware of their limits. And they experience the kingdom of God. They experience the good life. And of course, that begs the question, why? What is it about being poor? And I don't know if I know the whole answer, but I think it has something to do with the willingness to invite the presence and help of the Holy Spirit into one's life in a way that people who think they already have what they need will not. And this may be a little bit surprising. It seems that normally people that we consider to be blessed folks, the blessed people, are folks who appear rich, who have no obvious needs, who, if anything, seem to have everything together. Those are the people we congratulate Those are the people we say, way to go. They're self-sufficient. Ralph Waldo Emerson, an American poet and philosopher, wrote a famous essay entitled Self-Reliance that I think does a good job of summing up the point of view that we usually live with. He says, trust thyself. Every heart vibrates to that iron string. Discontent is the want of of self-reliance. It is infirmity of will. So in this line of thinking, we may indeed agree that things aren't perfect. We can all agree that we have problems. We're all imperfect. But the answer to these problems lies within. We have the power to fix ourselves. We can get to the good life on our own. We can think right. We can read the right books. We can obtain psychological growth that we need. We can obtain financial freedom. If I get a good job and I make money, then I can begin to experience a good life. If I have the relationships, if I find the love of my life, that's the good life. Politics. If we can just get the right people into office, we can see change. And all of these, none of them are bad things. They're all good things. They're all things worth paying attention to. God can really use all of those things as part of us experiencing the good life. But What if what we really want is beyond our own reach, is what I'm asking. What if we can't will ourselves to experience the good life? What if we need something more than we have on our own? And I think Jesus is hinting at some of this when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. There's more going on here than we can just control. There's more need than psychological or social or material. There's some sort of cosmic thing perhaps, happening here. And I wonder if we have a hard time admitting our need because it goes right against our culture and value of self-reliance. It's hard for us to admit this weakness. But it seems that Jesus is pointing us to this. Jesus is saying that those who admit their weakness get the kingdom. And more than that, Jesus is not just suggesting that those who admit it experience a good life. He takes it a step further. A lot of scholars that I read in preparation for this talk agree that it's not just random that verse 4 follows verse 3. They're connected. So verse 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's followed by blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The good life also belongs to those who mourn. And I think there's some universality to this, just mourning in general being willing to express the deepest pain that you're feeling for any cause, I think, 
is there's, there's this comfort that comes with that. But there's more to it than just this general sense of mourning in this passage. And that's why I'm encouraging us to know the cause. The good life belongs to those who know the cause. The word that's translated mourn is a significant word. It's not just a generic term for mourning. Actually, according to scholars, this is a particular kind of mourning that's indicated here. It's a mourning that's associated with a recognition of wrongdoing or sin and the destruction that comes from sin. And this mourning can be over personal sin or sin that a person sees in his or her surroundings and in the community around them. So Jesus is saying that those who experience the good life are not only those who know their needs, but also those who mourn the ways that they've attempted to be self-sufficient with no connection to God. In other words, those who experience the good life are those who own their own sin and are grieved by it and are moved by the sin that they see around them. I've had a lot of conversations with people in 2016 who are mourning both shortcomings they see in their own lives, but also what they see happening in the society around us. It's concerning, and there have been tears shed and mourning experienced. How can that be helpful? I think before we get into that, I think it's helpful to know that on the flip side, it might be said that those who deny sin are very unlikely to experience the good life. How can this be? Well, there's a psychologist by the name of Otto Rank, and he wrote a book called Beyond Psychology. And in it, he argues that the disbelief in sin has damaged the psyche of modern people. Here's what he says. He says the neurotic type suffers from a consciousness of sin just as much as his religious ancestor, and without actually, though, believing in the conception of sin. And this is precisely what makes him neurotic. He feels a sinner without the religious belief in sin, for which he therefore needs a new rational explanation. So it's as if, as other commentators have put it, he or she is a sinner without a name for it. And in this situation, there's no comfort. Because the need for comfort is denied because the cause is denied. Because the existence of the wrongdoing itself is denied. But here's the thing. If you don't mourn, you'll never be comforted. And what happens is this inner spiritual kind of confusion. Feeling the need for comfort. Believing in the wrongdoing in some subconscious, internal way. But not being able to own that wrongdoing. The only thing it leaves you with is sort of this is just the way it is. But to mourn is actually to no longer be confused. Not that you understand everything in the world. But you're connected to a cause for some of the pain in your life. You can look at the society around you and name some things as sinful or wrong or unjust. You can look at your own life and name your, some of your actions as sinful unjust, painful. And as we get in touch with this reality, remorse and mourning just flow naturally. But here's the thing, this is a good thing. 
See, as we follow Jesus, and morning works as it should, it's actually a healthy thing, and it leads to other good things. Morning actually can take us closer to and into the good life. If morning is a path, but not a destination. And this is important. Let's be honest. None of you are looking very perky right now as I talk about morning. You're not. I can testify. Who wants to feel bad even for a second? It's not fun. Doesn't feel life-giving, does it? To think about morning. When we're morning, are we enjoying it? No, absolutely not. It's, it, it doesn't feel good. It's not intuitive to want to mourn. It doesn't make sense at first. And this is definitely sort of a flip-the-lens type of situation where Jesus is pointing at something that we wouldn't normally want and saying, blessed are you if that's what you're experiencing. And blessed are people who experience this. And good for you if this has been your experience. You see, when negative feelings or mourning are not the end, when they're not where you land, when they're the beginning, not the destination, mourning with Jesus is different. It's transformative. It's not demoralizing. You know, in the Bible, there's this idea of these two things sort of put up against each other as a compare and contrast. It's something called godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. In 1 Corinthians, uh, the biblical writer Paul puts it this way. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. It's the end. (laughs) That's where you land. You see, godly sorrow, I think what Paul is saying here, leads to a change in direction that leads to life. It's like a prod that wakes us up. It turns us around. It's just enough pain to get our attention and no more. It keeps us moving. It keeps us from getting stuck. Worldly sorrow just turns us in on ourselves. And this is, I think, is the flip side of self-sufficiency. You know, what happens if you see yourself as a self-sufficient person and things aren't working out again and again and again? When we realize that we aren't experiencing the good life, if we're miserable in some sense, we question everything we're being taught. We question our own personal value. We start to hate ourselves. That's where we end. I read this book a few years ago. It's called Generation Me. It's by Dr. Gene Twenge. And in that, there's this idea that for those with a strong sense that they're special and that they can do or be anything, there's also a sense that things should, all caps, work out. And it's particularly a tough blow when things don't work out or when there's hardships. If things don't work out, something must be wrong. It's not just a part of life. Foundations of life are being shaken because I'm a special person. And if I believe and work hard, I can do or be anything. And the result the book reports is that right now there has, we're living in the midst of the rise of one of the most confident generations of all time, but also one of the most depressed. If you just believe is not the message of Jesus. See, the message of a God who suffers, who was broken for others, who mourns, is that some things in this life will not work out, no matter how much you believe. 
And when they don't work out, it will hurt bad. And the results of sin are painful. They should be mourned. But in and through that mourning, new life can be born. And if mourning is not the end, but the beginning, there's great potential. Mourning can be a path to the good life, not a destination in itself. If we, and this is the third thing, we know the answer. Well, what do I mean? Well, the answer is not just believing in ourselves. I think sometimes that denies our shortcomings. It gives us false hope. And the answer also is not tearing ourselves apart, believing that we're awful people who don't deserve the good life either. That's worldly sorrow. That brings death. And I think Jesus' answer is completely different. And this is where we've been leading this whole talk. This is where we want to land. This is what makes Jesus different. This is the reason, hopefully, that you're here, that you want something different in your life, that you don't just want what you can get by turning on any old TV and watching any old television program. This is what's different. Jesus' answer is grace. And this is what makes Jesus' approach to the good life, to everything so completely different, so completely transformational. What is the comfort that the way of Jesus offers. What does grace look like? How does it operate? I think the best way to understand grace is to see it in action. You know, I've been having a conversation with a friend over the last few weeks. I'm going to call her Faith. Her name's not Faith. She's a really inspiring person to me. Um, Faith has been raising two daughters on her own. She's a single mom. She wants the best for them. She loves them. But she's constantly faced with a question, am I doing enough? Am I doing enough? The word enough just almost hangs over her life sometimes. I remember talking to her during Christmas, and um, she was thinking about her daughters. She wanted everything to be perfect for them. She wanted the house, the gifts, the meals, the treats, all to communicate her love, her care for her children. It was a ton of work. It was too much work. For her sometimes. She had family coming to visit and stay with her. She also wanted to be present with her kids, to enjoy moments, to make memories. Some of you can relate to this, not just to be working the whole time. And for her, it was a bit of a metaphor of her whole life. Every situation that her daughters come up against, she's working so hard to make their lives work, she's sometimes afraid she's not connecting with them. And no matter what choice she seems to make in those situations, do I work on this? Do I take time off to listen right here? She always feels like she should be doing the other. It's never enough. And so as I've talked to her, I got to know her a little bit, I realized she's developed two mantras that help her that I think are profound, I think can help us understand grace. The first mantra is, I'm enough. I am enough. This is what grace tells her every day. As she rises in the morning, grace says, you have enough. You can do it. You've got this. Get in there. It can happen. You're gifted. You are good enough. You are smart enough. You have everything you need. That's what the Holy Spirit whispers to us as we live our lives. Sometimes we talk a lot about believing in God and we forget 
the messages of Scripture where God believes in us. I am enough. That's one thing she says to herself as she faces situations in her life. And her second mantra is this. I'm not enough. This is what Grace tells her every day. When she makes a mistake, when she's exhausted, when she doesn't have the energy, when she's weak, when she fails, when she makes the quote-unquote wrong decision, Grace says, I'm sufficient for you. Grace says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. I make up the difference for you. Now, you see what's happening here that is so different from the way most of us live most of the time. With grace, you don't have to beat yourself up. You don't have to tell yourself how terrible and worthless you are except for God. Because God is there telling you, I love you. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You have value. You do have potential. I see who you can be. You are awesome. So you don't have to beat yourself up to be in God's good graces. At the same time, you don't have to puff yourself up. You don't have to Stuart Smalley yourself. Because you can be aware that you have weaknesses, that you need help. And that without God, you can't be everything that you're made to be. Grace means we can be real and at peace and comforted. Grace means God has given you everything you need. And grace means you will need his help when the going gets tough. And both are true. And both are promised to you if you open yourself to Jesus and his way and his presence and his invitations. That's what grace is. It's not self-sufficiency. And it's not your lowly little worm that should just be squished into the dirt. Except for some reason, God knows why, God takes pity on you. You can know your value. You can have high self-esteem without being proud and arrogant. That's the good life. That's the sweet spot. That's what grace is. Nothing but grace offers that. The power of mourning is not renewed self-reliance. It's the experience of grace. You can live with confidence and humility but only if you live with grace. That's a sweet spot. Let's pray. And Jesus, we pray, could this be more true in our lives this week? than it was last week? Could we know in a deeper way our value and our need? Holy Spirit, would you come and as we sing songs to you, as we pray, as we live life, could this be more and more real to us? Could we find this sweet spot to live in? Amen. If you're on the worship team, if you can make your way forward.
I'll turn things back over to Magda.